Okay, pasa, mufasa, buongiorno, buonasera, hello from Venice, Italy. How's everyone doing today? Today we have got the powerhouse duo of Ross and Rianne from Symmetrics, and we're gonna talk about the intersection of psychedelics and language. It's been a whirlwind if anyone's been monitoring my travels over the last couple of months. This now marks almost three months I've been away from my home. This episode is brought to you by Usia Labs, O-U-S-I-A Labs, manufacturers of the first ever CO2 home extraction hardware equipment. Yes, you can make your own extractions and essences. This episode is also brought to you by Full Flush and the Macro All-in-One Grow Bag. Yes, it's true, you don't have to slog through shroomery forums in order to dip your toes into the field of citizen mycology. You can just tap in with full flush and get you a turnkey cultivation situation. Alrighty then, thanks for tapping in. As always, please consider leaving a review for the podcast wherever you're listening. Without further ado, let's get the show on the road. Okay, pasa mufasa. What's up, everybody? We've got Ross and Rianne of Symmetrix in the house tonight. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. How are the two of you doing this evening? Great. Marvelous to be here. Yes, it feels very, very sparkly to be having this conversation. This is an extension of a conversation we had last night, although who knows at what point these two podcasts will come out. But I was very inspired by our conversation last night, and I'm very inspired to flip that and learn more about the two of you and what you've been up to tonight. So whoever wants to take this first one, feel free to take it away. Can you define what exactly semantics is and what the term semantics means to you? Well, I first met Rianne when she was giving a talk about effing the ineffable at Breaking Convention. I think it was 2017. And that's been very much the theme of what semantics is to us, is this idea that it has always got to be possible to at least make an attempt to eff the ineffable. And the closer you get to a deep relationship with language and perception and the roots of the words that we're using and their cultural associations, the more adroitly it's possible to craft a life that you actually want to live, to communicate what you want to say, to have the experiences that result from that pure, untrammeled communication. So semantics is our attempt to bring together people from across the psychedelic diaspora who are dealing with various aspects of researching psychedelics in order to kind of dredge the most important parts of their language to the forefront of consciousness in the conversations that we have so that we can learn a bit from various people, put them into conversation with each other and bring together people that love words and love fine-tuning communication and just have yeah have some more, more precise, more incisive conversations essentially and, and see where that leads us and it's led us on some really interesting tangents so far. Yeah, it it grew out of my PhD initially, or the initial idea did. Um, I, I, I finished my PhD thesis last year, which was all about the entanglements between language and perception and belief systems of philosophy. And, you know, throughout, throughout, I think everyone experiences this if they're doing a PhD, it gets towards the end and you're being told, just finish it, just finish it. You know, four people in the world are going to read it. And I finished it, and then I was sort of like, I actually feel that some of these ideas are important. Some of these things that I've spent like five years, um, like, I think, well, longer, much longer. And 
um, wanted to sort of think about ways to like make some of these ideas more accessible, you know, to really help people to understand just how much language affects our experience of the world. And then Roz was the only person I knew in the psychedelic community who had that same kind of passion for language and, and literature and had spent many years in um, psychedelic media and journalism and pub like publishing. Um, well, Rianne finished her PhD at a time when I think I probably would have gone mad in my... Um, well, I mean, not, that's not to say that I didn't, but I, I, was, I was definitely on the brink of something because I'd been working in drug policy for the previous three years and in crafting psychedelic communications for the previous eight, which essentially means finding good journalists that want to write about psychedelic phenomena well and pairing them up with researchers and trying to birth articles within the media machine that are not doing a disservice to the materials. So initially that was fighting this kind of histrionic, drugs are bad, they're banned narrative. And then later on that was noticing the creeping in of the hype and going, well, I, well, I don't want people to be evangelizing in what they're saying either. And feeling kind of very trapped in this strange cruel space of more and more solidifying metaphors in the media language that I was dealing with, having to really, really fight to find writers that would publish something that wasn't kowtowing to all of these increasingly dominant ideologies in the space. And then drug policy has its own uh, linguistic tangles as well, because you need to use the language of the people that you are trying to convince. And then that, that leaves very, very little room to speak genuinely or openly or even necessarily accurately about what's going on in the ground in the research. So I was feeling really kind of trapped between a rock and a hard place, to use a, a very traditional metaphor. Um, and then Rianne's idea of bringing our uh, expertise together was a, a very, very nice opportunity to kind of crush some of the rocks and snort them and see what we could do with all of this ire that we'd both been incurring as we looked at the discourse in the psychedelic scene at large and just, just thinking kind of how can we create the tools, teach the tools to improve on this. Yeah, yeah. Most people most people don't really know what language is uh, and they, they believe that they do but they they don't and it's really it can be really problematic well, I think one of the things which um, Rianne devised a module in the course that we have that really looks at this is just quite how endemic metaphor is to language that we use. So um, the rock and a hard place metaphor that I used a moment ago, that's kind of obvious to anyone listening to this and all of us that that is a metaphor. But we use metaphor in every sentence, everything that we say, it's so well concealed, um, they're all just so entrenched, that the idea of kind of picking it apart and thinking, well, why did I refer to this as an it, or like, why do I think of the, the sun as more masculine and the moon as more feminine? Like, we don't necessarily ask ourselves these questions all the time because our ways of thinking are just with these hidden metaphors.
I think it's fascinating that you mentioned to me at one point that you find it quite difficult to explain what semantics is. And yet that was an extremely eloquent and succinct accounting of what semantics is with a whole bunch of backstory there. And I'm personally very fascinated with etymology, with the origin of words, of course. And I probably attribute that to growing up around foreign exchange students. And as you mentioned, the way they understood the world was defined by their linguistic frameworks and humor and metaphors and things like that are very culturally ordained, right? It's like very difficult to understand a joke in another language because it's not just the words, it's all these associations that you have with them. So I'm curious about a phrase that I found on your website, which is very poetic and something that I don't really understand what it is. And maybe it's not meant to be, maybe it's one of those F the ineffable things, but what is a skeleton key to the bewilderness? What does that mean? It's abstract. Is it like a pick your own definition sort of thing? Uh, I love that a lot of poetry is open to interpretation. I'm a huge E.E. E. Cummings fan. That was one of my first writers that blew my mind who you might be familiar with. What does a skeleton key mean to you? What do you think of it? What do you think about? I think of antiquity. I think of something that's very heavy and old and like maybe is going to open a door that's like from, you know, hundreds of years ago. That's what I, and also there's a line in an Incubus song that I like a lot where they talk about a skeleton key in the song, the original. So that's where my mind goes, top of mind. What does it mean to you? Well, I, I mean, it, they're, they're, they were the keys that opened like multiple, like multiple locks. Um, I think it was kind of like the master key. But I think the bewilderness aspect is um, quite an interesting element to pair with it because when you've got a key, if let's say like when you've got a IKEA instructions and you've got this little key at the top and it has all of these nuts and bolts that don't necessarily correspond to what you've actually got in the packet, but essentially you've got this key that will hopefully help you put this chest of drawers together. And... Um, Obviously, that key trains your attention on the particular objects that it's pointing out. And then you're focusing on those objects rather than the negative space between them, the rest of the room, um, anything else going on kind of around you in the immediate atmosphere, smells, scents. But if you've got a skeleton key, you can open up lots of different things. And so there's no need necessarily to focus on what your attention would be trained on if you just had a regular key with one unlock or a map you have the ability to enter into the bewilderness is essentially this kind of gray space where there's this kind of nebula of possible things to birth out of it and look at in more detail and that is a lot of where we want to draw people's attention to is not the things that a conference might spotlight or an article might tell you to believe are the important things but between the lines and the gray space so it's yeah I guess it's a a set of different ways to navigate the gray space did I write that line or did you you wrote that line um but I have thought about it a lot in the past few days <laughs> you sent good questions you know I think I've also heard that gray space referred to as a liminal space as sort of a space between states into the liminal wilds of the imagination is a phrase I like as well so Let's talk a little bit about etymology or the etymological origins of various psychedelic words, because I think a lot of people use words, as you say, a lot of people think they know what language is, but maybe we don't or they don't. And psychedelic itself is quite a loaded word where I believe the Latin meaning is to manifest the mind or to make manifest, make visible the mind and feel free to 
offer an alternate definition, but also that's quite ambiguous. Like, what are we talking about when we talk about a psychedelic? And as an example of that, I think it's quite interesting that back when I first got started, a psychedelic meant psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, DMT, etc., mescaline. But now it sort of brings a bunch of other things into the fold and like ketamine and MDMA and a number. And it starts to, for me, like is alcohol psychedelic by that definition? You know, like it, it really depends on who you ask. So what is your definition of psychedelic? And are there any other etymological origins that you're aware of, of interesting words that are casually flung around in this space? Okay, so I, I mean, if, 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 we're, if we're going into psychedelic, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure many of you are listeners do you know the origin of that phrase it was um, um, in correspondence in a letter of correspondence between Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond um, because they wanted to um, find a different name for cl the class of substances that at the time were called psychotomimetics um, so, so mescaline LSD um, psilocybin and they 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 wanted to get away from these connotations of madness. So um, Humphrey Osmond wrote, um, to fathom hell or soar angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic. So by that definition, that origin, um, uh, you could argue that psychedelic um, is anything where you can take a pinch of it and then fathom hell or soar angelic, if you think really. But I mean, of course, nobody... Nobody uses it like that, and, and it, it is, it's really, and, and I think it's really worth asking the question when we're in these conversations, like, what do you mean when you say psychedelic? Because for some people, it's a molecule that agonizes, is that the word? There's a 5-HT to A receptors. For some people, it's just anything hallucinogenic. Um, you know, for other people, it's this sort of classic tryptamines or, or, or whatever. Yeah, I think you're so right that it's um, a question that's worth asking anyone uh, because it's now kind of what does, what does the word psychedelic mean to you? And there's so many opinions that have come from deep learning from different sources in this um, research field now that there's a validity if someone can defend it well and justify just categorizing certain substances or just looking at a particular mental state that it will bring you to um yeah i, th I feel like it's it's very very subjective but one of the because i guess to go to the etymology of it there's um psyche and delos the two greek roots then um it's mind manifesting so um, oh it, it yeah the the, the actual translation often kind of retranslated as mind manifesting but yes um but then i think beca because the the popular conception is that it means mind manifesting to me that places this really westernized emphasis on the mind that will be manifested which creates this focus where when you're tripping you're going to be thinking about like oh well, what does this reveal about my mind like is this an insight into this aspect of me and it's so the anathema of how for instance any of the tribes in bruce parry's to why might think of taking these substances and or becoming one with the spirits of the forest or any of the um, people that Jeremy Narby has worked with. Like, it's, it's, it's really, really um, not what anthropologists are finding is how people would treat 
an altered state experience. It's, it's, it's very kind of self-first and kind of part of our Cartesian worldview to to manifest the mind and then look at the mind and peer into it. I think, so I think it, it comes with a reinforcement of some cultural things to question. At breaking convention this year, Jonathan Ott went on a bit of a tirade against the word psychedelic. I don't know if you caught that during his lecture, but he was not entirely happy with calling the whole renaissance you know the word renaissance is loaded as well obviously but he was insistent that psychedelic was the wrong word to be using in the first place and i wish i remember what he had proposed as an alternative because it was a word i'm unfamiliar with but that word means so many things to so many people which i think is really interesting like when we're having a conversation and you meet someone you talk about psychedelics that could mean so many different things and in denver at psychedelic science, I was at a panel called Indigenous Affinity, Legislative Impacts on Native Communities. And one of the elder gentlemen, elder native tribes representatives insisted, we've never used the word psychodelic. He kept saying psychodelic. And like, this is an unfamiliar word to us. And it's really humbling, I suppose, to think about that, that depending on who you talk to, this may or may not apply to the idea of like, you know, mescaline use or peyote use by an indigenous tribe, is that psychedelic or is that something that's more of like an ethno, ethno medicine or an ancestral rite of passage? Depends on who you ask. So I'm curious because there are so many well-known psychedelic authors, like for most people, uh, I would say your mind immediately goes or my mind as to Hunter S. Thompson or to Allen Ginsberg, like that's a psychedelic writer and so on and so forth. But there are so many people who have contributed seminal works to this canon of what we would consider psychedelic literature many people would that kind of get overlooked it feels like so who are some people that qualify by your definition as a psychedelic journalist or a writer or or an author etc that maybe don't get the attention they deserve one that i'll one that i'll throw in and i know i talk about this a lot but um aldous huxley's wife laura huxley um really really overlooked. She wrote this incredible um, book in 1963 that became a bestseller called uh, you, are, you Are Not the Target, um, 30 Recipes for Living and Loving. And it was really all about um, sort of revamping your metaphors and, you know, kind of methods of reframing your like suffering. And it was a lot she was writing about a lot of the same things that Aldous Huxley was writing about, but in these in this really accessible way that was... It's almost aimed at, like, 1960s housewives, but it's just really... Um, it, it's great. It's great. No, I also have one from quite long ago, so in 1971, a Colombian writer called Andres Cicada wrote a book called... Viva la Musica, which is the popular translation is Live Forever. And it essentially follows Maria, who is a schoolgirl, um, as she grows up, leaves school, goes around Cali, and kind of gets deeper and deeper into the rumba scene, takes all of the drugs. It has these incredible descriptions of all of her altered states as she kind of moves through this progression from kind of a couple of lines of cocaine here and there to injecting harder and harder drug use. They had these pills called Sacona there's this really beautiful sequence where she drops some acid in a river and then just imagines the gringos who are going to get a surprise trip when they accidentally swallow it but it's just so 
brilliantly um, encapsulatory of someone just loving altered states for the altered states themselves and it kind of exists in a vacuum in the sense that um, Andres Cicada, um, he killed himself when he finished writing at age 31 because he felt like that was all he had left to say um, but it's just um, purely decontextualized from anything that was going on with the drugs trade in Colombia at the time so someone will be cutting cocaine with a knife and they'll be like oh this is a peace knife it's just for cocaine um, but incredibly vivid writing with these brilliant descriptions of the different perceptions of all of the people in the room as different types of drug use unfold so it, um, it very very much feels like somewhere that you can go to for examples of drugs shifting in different contexts and the way that a social context can make or break the actual altered state experience. And then I guess actually going like much more modern, and this I think this will be canonical, but it just came out a couple of years ago, Threshold by Rob Doyle. He's an Irish writer, and he just takes you on a really, really brilliant chronology of his kind of journey through altered state experiences and his maturation from kind of teenage mushroom experiences um, all the way to kind of recent discovery of DMT. Uh, but it's just the most relatable writing where he also kind of juxtaposes the contexts that he's taking it in with what he's learning about the drug history as a whole so you get these wonderful passages where he's talking about his ketamine exploration and then uh, in a boat in India and then going and I was always astonished to hear that people back home were taking this stuff at nightclubs and so you kind of you get to kind of experience his personal perception but again with this wraparound context that shows how important context it yeah and I guess for me actually con like evoking a context in your description of drugs is one of the best things you can possibly do when writing about drugs so for, yeah, from a fiction point of view I'd say those are my two big ones that I could could happily we should do whole semantic sessions on the ones that we love um but yeah I I think they're both really really amazing books and would highly recommend you know for sure the first author or writer who ever opened my mind up to psychedelics and to entheogens in particular is a writer named Kira Salik. I don't know if you've read anything by her, but she was writing for National Geographic and there was a cover story on National Geographic Adventure, which was like a subsidiary of Nat Geo. And she was writing about her ayahuasca experience and it was so vividly detailed. It was like I was there and I remember being 14 or 15 when this magazine found its way to me and just reading it straight through this article and saying I have to learn everything I can possibly learn about this ayahuasca stuff which was quite amazing to see you know how one writer can fully shape the future the trajectory that you go on just by encapsulating it that was also a very good conjugation of encapsulation I've never heard anyone say encapsulatory before so kudos to you on that one you've dropped some really good vocab that I'm gonna have to you know totally Google after this so props to you on that but okay another question were you always the two of you were you inclined from a literary standpoint like at a young age you were devoted to the literary arts or was there a pivotal experience that happened like you read a book or you something happened that really captured your attention and was there a point when you fully devoted yourself to the literary craft Ooh, that's a, that's an interesting question yeah um yes and no when 
it was when I when I was about 14 I was really not interested in school and then you know as, as is the story with, with many of these things you get like a really good teacher who actually likes his job and like respects the students and you, you know like wants to hear their thoughts um, I just had a really really good teacher and then um, it was sort of literature that introduced me to the psychedelic world. You know, I'd written a, I'd written a, like a literature master's thesis on psychedelics before I even like ingested any. Um, so that that was it was that was the doorway into this world for me as well. And I think similarly, actually, um, although I was quite subversive about it, I, um, in primary school we'd wear these pinafores and I would always make sure that I had a book kind of tucked inside my pinafore so that when I went to the toilet in maths I could kind of get a sneaky read in. Um, and I would always be kind of scribbling some kind of story in the back of my exercise book or under the desk. So there was a lot of subversive composition going on in any lesson that wasn't English. Um, and I guess I've always been quite um, dogmatically interested in kind of one or two things at a time so when I added drugs in to the mix the kind of blending of how to talk about drugs how to vocalize or to state experiences was just a very natural marriage with the fact that I love to to play with words and to write so from yeah from about the age of 15 that was a, a kind of twinned passion well it's an altered state as well isn't it when you when when you're reading Oh, totally. Really altered state. Or, or thinking about writing something as well, it can completely take you out of whatever would otherwise have been going on. And you know, I guess we don't necessarily give non-drug altered states of consciousness that much credit um, in the psychedelic discourse as it is at the moment. So... The just using yeah. our imaginations has been something that we've loved doing, crafting semantics, loved encouraging people to do. And Sarah Janes, who is a lucid dreaming expert who we've had on um, the show before, she um, talks really, really beautifully about how um, psychedelics can encourage people to remember that they could have imagined things in the first place or that sometimes the excitedness that people get into about altered states is because of having forgotten that you could just use your imagination so yeah I think we definitely want to fly the flag for imagination yeah. in its own right although it's not always it's not always great I just remembered reading I had a bit of a Bukowski phase when I was like 17 and I was so obnoxious for about <laughs> five months um, so I think it can, can go both ways so Let's pull on this thread for a second. First of all, I wanted to offer this thought that someone told me that writing is clear thinking and it really framed it for me. Like I find like a lot of people when we speak, you are going off of habits and this and that and you're conditioned. But with writing, you really have a chance to like think deeply and clearly. And, you know, whenever I'm doing a public speech or whatever, like I'm trying as much as possible to frame that in writing beforehand and to really think about a particular subject. So you mentioned yesterday that there's this phenomenon where men in particular will talk at you about DMT, which is quite funny. And I've certainly been guilty about that before. You know, like I'm 
I've had some experience and I want to explain it. And I think that's this phenomenon we talked about a little bit that like men feel this need to explain, to mansplain things, right? And you're both clearly very deep thinkers and very informed about what you're doing. Do you pick up on this dynamic often? Do you have any thoughts you'd like to offer about it? And what is in general, do you think that men and women are conditioned differently with our language? And is that one of the fundamental rifts between our ability to communicate in a more, let's say, equitable or equal manner is the, that we fundamentally see the world differently and use different language? That's a really interesting question. It's really, really difficult as well. Um, I, know there are, I know there are all kinds of myths about women having, in general, much larger vocabularies for like in use. Um, That's really interesting. That. Yeah, like much, like much more. Like, fact check that before you tell other people. Uh, <laughs> I suppose um, to look at it in terms of gender studies, there's a book that I absolutely love that I talk about all the time. So I was going to mention it anyway in connection to psychedelics and media, but it's called. Unbound, A Woman's Guide to Power by Kasia Baniak. And she trained as a Taoist nun while funding her studies, being one of the world's most successful dominatrices. And so she has these two really, really rarefied ways of looking at the world that she brings together. And why she essentially brings them together is to reveal what she perceives as these hidden levers and pulleys that rig the world to be favourable to men and to the patriarchy, so that women are kind of undermined from the get-go and need to have strategies to kind of overcome all of these hurdles that are set up against kind of the female success and trajectory and experience but one of the things she really talks about in relation to that is language so um, boys might be kind of praised in terms of look at what Billy's doing hasn't Billy said a clever thing and then Mary's so polite Mary's so pretty look at Mary's dress so there's these very different kind of perceptual fields which kind of surround you like a plush that you might in kind of American modern western society which is where she's writing from be kind of really linguistically kind of trapping someone in gender in a way that can relate to having a lot to overcome later on yeah i think yeah because because i think i think even in in this culture now it's still kind of stigmatized to be a, a know-it-all if you're a woman more so than it is to is to be a man and I, I really feel that in mexico as well which which where the gender dynamics are slightly different um yeah, and I guess producing music in Mexico is an interesting one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Predominantly male musicians. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very it's it's very much it's very much still alive that dynamic, isn't it? Of, um... One place where I definitely found it was drug policy, um, both in the sense that I was ghostwriting for a man, so I was writing all of these 
speeches and articles in the voice of a male politician and I was firstly finding quite interestingly that my own language when I wrote as myself got less flowery because it was almost as though my voice had been subsumed in my kind of recreational writing by my day job um, but it was just very interesting how I would be doing all this research he wouldn't necessarily know all of the things that I would be finding out to put in the articles I'd be kind of texting things that would then go straight into what would be said in parliamentary questions uh, but it would be then said through this male senior mouthpiece and it would then have this clout which it would never have had if I had been actually known to be the person saying it and I think ghostwriting is an interesting one because you're, um, I think it's bad form to talk about having done it um, but in a, it's also quite interesting technically um, and so you're basically in this position where your voice is is desired but your persona is not and that so there's there's quite an interesting kind of bifurcation there because the the words have to not only speak for themselves but be convincing as someone else's words in order to then land where they need to go and have the effects that they need to have and then that means that the knowledge that has gone into making them also has to be chiselled to fit the format that means that it will be a, a convincing piece of writing. So there's there's a lot of strange artistry to it, which if you're doing it for drug policy reform that you believe is being done for the right reasons, I think would be a worthwhile activity but it's yeah it does it does throw up a lot of questions about authenticity of voice that process let's build upon this idea uh what <laughs> i just got to go into the differences here between united states and british culture because i'm fascinated by it and we discussed a little bit before about americans don't necessarily understand irony and that british humor from my appraisal is quite dry quite sardonic and for example the office the office the british one in case people are unfamiliar it is a british show uh, a lot of people in the u.s didn't find the british version funny but the U.S. version was quite over the top and silly and kind of like had obviously a branded humor that landed with the U.S. audience. What is it about British humor that Americans have a hard time understanding? And how do you as British people respond to American humor? Well, I'd, I've certainly been um, pulled off from, my, from American friends um, for being sarcastic, but not changing my voice when I say the sarcastic thing, so it's unclear um, what, I, what I really mean. Um, I was just thinking then, as, as you were asking that question, I th think as well, a lot of British culture, it plays on um, uh, the class, like sort of classes as well, um, which, is, which is just a lot more obvious in 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 England, well, in in the in, in the UK, like what class you're from, like it's it's it, like it's clear from my accent that I have a working class background, and it's clear from Rosa's accent that that she's not from a working class background, and a lot of the culture is playing on that in sort of humorous ways as well, and that's one distinction that I really think, uh, of course, you have it in the states but I'm not sure it's quite as pronounced. 
Yes, and because I, I feel like it's very common for friends that have learned English to say to us, but it's so unfair because we learn English and then it turns out that none of the words mean what you think they'd mean. And it's not only the tone with which we're saying them, but it's also who's saying them. I mean, there's certain things that I would feel like I, I wouldn't get away with saying that Rianne can say and like things that would also maybe sound like Rianne was taking the piss out of someone with my accent if she were to say that like so you kind of end up needing to stay within a smaller palette of typical sayings unless you're determined to break out of that um right which means it's it's easy to play on that because it's so clear what people are allowed to say or what 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 it would be natural for particular people to say um but yeah, that's that, that's that, that's a really good point. There are loads of things that I couldn't say that you say. You know, if if, if I if I speak with elo eloquence around my dad, he'll 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 be like, "Hey, have you have you swallowed a dictionary? What's wrong with you?" <laughs> we have a British friend, Danny. I guess she's Irish. I'm so sorry. We have an Irish friend, Danny, and she's vegan. And her dad will say. When are you going to give up eating that rabbit food, Danny? And I just think, you know, it's like a kind of an example of that, like working class, like don't be a vegan, you know, which, yeah. It's... So I, I, I ordered a mushroom burger in a restaurant with my dad once and he, and, and he was like, have you joined a cult? <laughs> <laughs> what is your general perception of Americans? I think that, you know, it's uh, uh, there's a good joke here that it's like, the greatest gift that England ever gave to the world was America, you know, and like America <laughs> jazz. <laughs> I think Col Stephen Colbert said that. But yes, it's quite an interesting place. I don't know if either of you have been to the United States and visited the Yanks and this and that and the other. But like, what is the perception of and let's let's tie this into psychedelics too to bring it back sort of to the psychedelic ethos that we've started the podcast with both of us. So what, what is your perception coming from the UK, from England and Breaking Convention where we met, which is a wonderful conference we both you know, have spoken at and presented at versus your what you've seen in the United States? Can you just provide some of your top of mind thoughts about the distinctions between England and the US psychedelics? Okay, um, first of all, there's like really awesome work going on in the States. Just, I mean, that's, and it's incredible what people are achieving. And from a British perspective, there's a lot of virtue signaling and a lot of this kind of weird woke culture and, and this strange vernacular that's um, forming that's kind of hilarious, but Yes, yeah, so, so my very first entry to the United States was to come for psychedelic science, which we've both just been at. Um, and I, I couldn't help thinking psychedelic science might be potentially an unrepresentative first um, event ever to go to in the US. But I guess it does tie psychedelia to the question very well. But I did definitely feel like there was an adherence to correct language which pertained not only to the sessions themselves but to the conversations that people were having in the hallways and in general which was to me 
atypical. It felt like there was a, a kind of collective understanding of a zeitgeist and the jargon that pertains to different strands of that zeitgeist and that people were kind of finding the others by making sure more so than has ever stood out to me in any context before by using the right linguistic signifiers and the right topics to find the others. So it, it felt more like a conversational game of chess than any other psychedelic conference context I've been into and only seemed to alleviate slightly when the substances came out in the evenings. <laughs> That's one of my favorite parts of these conferences, for sure. I think uh, a lot of us can attest to that. Wow. Okay, so language diversity, speaking of, yes, the United States definitely has a proclivity, I think, in a lot of the culture towards being very particular with how we talk about subjects. And it's also quite inflammatory if you use the the wrong language. And like, I think personally, that oftentimes gets in the way of meaningful discourse. Like if you say something wrong, okay, maybe you said something wrong according to someone else, but like the end goal should be communication, not about trying to tear people down for how they frame a certain subject. That's just my take on it. So one clear example of that is like, people saying like drug use versus drug abuse. And I think that people can get like very triggered over something, but not everyone is like super educated. And I think there's ways to like educate people without ad hominem critiquing them. And, uh, and so I, I hope that we can get to a better place where we're able to communicate more diplomatically and assume benevolence uh, when we're talking to other people here specifically. But language diversity, really interesting subject. I know it's something that you're both invested in and interested in. And we're both in, we're all three of us in Mexico right now, which has a ton of languages and some of them are disappearing. And of course, in the States where I'm from in California, there are languages that are only spoken by a handful of people. You probably know this story about the Navajo wind talkers, or you may have heard that, where that was the Navajo indigenous tribe. And they, during World War II, that was the language they were using because it was impenetrable. Nobody outside of this tiny community spoke or understood the language or could crack it. Uh, but now, unfortunately, just like with biodiversity loss, there's this rampant acceleration of language loss and different languages around the world that are disappearing, essentially. So what does language diversity mean to you in today's age, 2023, and why is it decisive to the future of our planet? I just want to say something on the last topic, but I'll, 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 I'll tie it through. Um, you know, of course, we're we're extremely finicky about language. That's that's you know what we do and like what words people are using. But it's sort of scorning people for using the wrong words is entirely wrong. It's a complete misunderstanding of language. Um, you know, like language. It, it's not language is not just the names that we give to stuff. You know, like like language. Languages they they shape how we encounter the world, you know, how we understand ourselves and what we pay attention to and what we don't pay attention what we don't pay attention to. And um, I think honestly one of the best things we can do for our own sort of minds and our own sort of openness is to is to learn another language, um, even if you do it really badly. And one of the examples that that we've that we talked about is even in Spanish, you've got like 
two ways of saying I love you. Te, I have a stammer in Spanish. It's really, it's te amo and te quiero. And that's really, that's really hard for English speakers at first, right? You, I mean, you, you speak Spanish, right? <laughs> that's a really, that's a really hard distinction. And, and the, the, the more people you ask to translate it, the, the, you get so many different answers. And it's only after sort of like speaking the language for a while that you start to kind of actually feel what that difference might mean. And then once you have that concept, then you can pay attention to it, you know? Like, I'd, I'd, my, my background's in Chinese, and I um, did Chinese at university, and I sort of realized on my year abroad there, like, oh, like, you can't just, this isn't just another set of names for the stuff. Like, you have to learn to see again. Like, it's just, you, you have to, like, unlearn all the concepts and, and, and allow there to be new ones and um, that is just the key or one of the many keys I'm sure there are many keys to, to, to just letting go of like how you think the world is you know because English like it's so biased towards this sort of Cartesian worldview kind of the, the separation of the mind and the body and um, and it's just it's absolutely like absolutely ingrained in our language in ways that we don't even notice um, and being able to realize that it, it it's just it's just it's just mind-blowing and, and and we're not saying like oh you know you have to go and learn an indigenous language where there's no word for mind and there's no word for words for colors but just exposing yourself to what some of those languages look like you know even that can just really really change the way really change the way that you look at things and I think to, to build on that and just to kind of foreground the importance of that kind of learning. One of the things that I'm really obsessed with is metaphors as opposed to metaphors. And so these are kinetic metaphors. They're metaphors that change the way we think and might change the way we act. Um, and it comes from a critic called Michael Silverstein, who had these terms, inert discourse, which is where discourse just stays the same and you talk in ways that have already been established to talk about those particular topics. And so, for instance, there might be a set kind of vocabulary that you use to talk about wine, and then people that are studying cheese might use similar kinds of constructions to talk about cheese that already exist for talking about wine, so you just get more of this kind of inert discourse. And then when you do the kind of thinking that Rianne was just describing, you then get something called entropic discourse, which is discourse that has the potential to disrupt, has the potential to change things, and is more likely to be an approximation of what you really mean. So that's when we get to live in a world where we're communicating in real time new thoughts rather than falling back on existing constructions to try to hang our thoughts on that just end up invoking a load of other things we don't necessarily mean to invoke. What's well, dogma, isn't it? When, when language, get, language gets too fixed, that, that's when you get sort of dogmas. Um, 
and that, that it's just so important that we get better at, at understanding how to dismantle um, dogmas that are mainly semantic and you know it, it's just it's just so helpful because <laughs> once you sort of really get into semantics you realize that you, you, you hear people are having arguments then you're like hang on a minute you're actually saying the same thing but you just have a different definition of that word um, and and no one's realised it. So true. And I think for that reason, um, just to add a tiny bit more in, uh, two of my favourite people that write about drug policy are Hieronimo Mazaraza, um, who's part of ICES, um, which is the organisation based in Spain that works with uh, plant medicines, particularly ayahuasca, and Charlotte Walsh, who is a law lecturer at Leicester University. And they both write about drug policy in this really, really clear, original way that allows them to say exactly what they mean, it allows them to say when something is bullshit to not put too fine a point on it and it's just so different to the trap that so many people writing about drug policy can fall into where they end up using the idiolects of the political rhetoric itself and then finding it impossible to make any changes because you're just helping build this linguistic behemoth that is inert and not disruptive so you know, people that can can take on drug policy topics but do it in an original way and say what they mean i think that's a, a really really important uh, element of the things that are going on right now i couldn't agree more and we're good. let's jump into a deep topic right now i'm fading because i usually go to bed at 8 p.m straight up full stop and it's 8:45, and i'm fading but i really want to go into this so let's take as much time as we need with it but how have your psychedelic experiences impacted your understanding of language and reshaped them it's a big one i think i may have experienced or explained a little bit that i had some pretty profound psychedelic experiences involving hieroglyphics and and really one of the key takeaways a lot of people have is this idea of like shedding your linguistic framing of the world like you enter a state when you have a dmt experience or a transcendental psychedelic experience or even a near-death experience outside of psychedelics etc where you you become unenglished right i think like unenglishable is one way i've heard described you know the psychedelic experience like it's almost impossible to put into words but how have your psychedelic experiences shaped your relationship and your understanding of language I think it's only ineffable because because our language and our perception is sort of intertwined. So, um, you know, if you, if you change your mode of perception, then suddenly that those that language just isn't really appropriate anymore. And I really think it's just it's not that it's it's not that it's beyond language necessarily, um, that it's it, it's just that the concepts of English, which is, you know, tied to this kind of sobriety where also like in our culture we only value one state of consciousness and anything like that's altered is like seen as less real um so that anyway so that's that's just that's that but um in terms of sort of how i, I mean i i love i love how psychedelics sort of um influence language but I'd, i've had a few experiences where um, this 
this understanding of just how much language um, like impresses itself upon our experience. And it, that's not even the right way to say it because it's just that those things are one and the same experience and language are just so deeply embedded. But I, I remember I was in Wales, there's about eight of us, and we were in the woods and we had these um, these mushroom chocolates and they were like as azurescens, azurescens, I never know how to pronounce the word. And so with we we all, you know, start eating these chocolates, take a piece each, and like it's pretty like it's pretty gross, um, but it's kind of abstractly awful, and we're just like, oh, oh, that's grim. And then one of the guys in the group goes like, oh, it tastes like stomach bile, and as soon as he said that, it like the experience just like completely changed, and it was like, oh yeah. It's exactly like stomach stomach bile. So then, just that one little like semantic hook, and your sensation is much worse, much worse than when it was just this kind of nebulous like, Ugh. Um, and just realizing that that that's just happening all the time, all the time. Well, yeah, uh, Jeremy Nerby writes about. Um, Shaman sending kind of darts to each other in ayahuasca ceremonies um, when it's a kind of less holistic kind of magic going on and I feel like words can very much be a dart in that sense like you can't necessarily come back from the new consciousness in a psychedelic experience which encountering a particular form of language can take you to but equally, words can be so much more fun to say on psychedelics. I feel like you can suddenly get these new spins on the etymology of any particular word that comes to mind, particularly if you're rather lost for words and then the words you manage to produce are, I think, then much more important for being the ones that you were able to find. And I also think anyone who hasn't tried writing a poem on acid, I think it's a, a very, very worthwhile thing to attempt because you'd be very surprised what comes out of the pen and how much fun it is and how much easier you might find it to write poetry on acid than necessarily in a normal waking state of consciousness, particularly if it's not something you typically do. I feel like that's a, a really good way in. But it's much easier to notice like homonyms and things like that in in altered states. That's yes, really for sure. I think that's one of the reasons I connect with music and with certain vocalists a lot in altered states is some of the phrasing becomes ambiguous and I can assign my own values to it. And uh, like, I love the red hot chili peppers, you know, and like, what the hell is that dude talking about? Like, doesn't really mean, but you know, it's really fun. Like it just language takes on a whole different meaning to it. And and I've heard about a lot of different artists, musicians and singers using this technique where they'll write lines like a poem and then cut them up and put them in a hat and then pick the lines out of the hat. And those are the lyrics. So they're not sequential. You know, like when we have regular communication, it's supposed to make sense. It's supposed to be like linear and like I tell you something and you follow it. But language also has this other side to it where it's kind of awesome when it's cryptic and open to interpretation and abstract. And I suppose that's why I got sucked into poetry very early is E.E. Uh, e. Cummings, I mentioned earlier, had a huge influence on the way that I think because I remember seeing one of his poems 
freshman year of high school called Since Feeling is First, if you're familiar with that one. And it was really beautiful, but it wasn't really logically correct. And I remember that's the whole point of the poem is like, if it's beautiful and if it's charged with feeling and meaning, does that meaning have to make sense? Does it have to be linear and logical? And as you said, Western society only values one state of consciousness, but really there are, you know, how, when you have a dream and it's so interesting because it didn't make sense. Like you did something that wouldn't actually happen really in our you know, plane of existence, but it takes on this supercharged meaning because it's like kind of a riddle. And I think this also ties to satire that I like a lot of cryptic satire where it's like, why was that funny? Like it didn't really make sense, but it was baffling. And when I think about that, I think about like a skeleton key to the bewilderness. Like maybe it doesn't need to have one meaning. Maybe it can have myriad meanings that people can unpack on their own terms. So that's, that's my take on it. So I would love to wrap up by asking, uh, what is going on next in your world? Where can people find you? How can they tap in? What's going on with semantics over the next couple of days, weeks, and months? Well, we have a website um, at www.symantrix.co.uk where you can join as a member and access all of the interviews and past events that we have produced over the last eight and nine months that we've been hatching this. And we're at the moment working on our next course, which will be coming out in September, October, kind of autumn time, and that will be a chance to join us for eight weeks where we delve into translation, indigenous cosmologies, integration, psychedelic buzzwords, etymology, many of the things yeah. that we've been talking about today, and to bring people together in a group format to really share a love of all of these topics. Yeah, like, like really, really trying to get to get to the heart of, of just how language works, you know, we, it, as, as we know with psychedelics we have these immensely powerful tools for altering perception and, and you know, we believe as much as anyone, anyone else does that, you know, um, these m might be unprecedented in their capacity to, you know, make the world a better place, but I think if, if, if we can't adapt our language along with our perception when those two things are so deeply entwined then it's just it's going to be it's going to be really really difficult and and it, it's just you know that the, there's a lot of kind of self help that focuses on you know that positive self talk and you know like repeating positive affirmations and it's like yeah yeah cool do that but if you don't really know like how language works, you know, on a sort of deeper level, it, it's really, really limited. But once you understand what your kind of biases are and, you know, the sort of the, what the metaphors are that make up even the most basic aspects of your experience, it, it's, it's just so much more, it just gives you so much more sovereignty over your kind of everyday Yes, because if you're mastering the understanding of the mechanisms of metaphor, then you're not going to risk going to a retreat where you just get peddled a new one. And that is the format of so many different wellness gizmos and retreats at the moment is kind of 
as you were saying, like, here's a new metaphor to live by, and then, of course, if you've got the same underlying processing under that, then you're just going to be back where you started in a calcified thought pattern in a few weeks' time. Yeah, or, or, or retreat centres um, that, that don't really know that they're... Pres- pres- you know, it's this thing at the minute of, um, you know, retreat centres saying, oh, you know, we, we don't... Um, we're not tied to any tradition, you know, people are free to make their own meaning, which is great, you know, we don't need more cults. But also, like, if you've got on your website that, um, you know, psilocybin's a brain reset, you know, that's not an ideologically inert statement. There's all kinds of stuff in there, assumptions about, you know, the the, the mind and uh, existence and... And just really, like wanting to help people understand that you know, like not subscribing to a particular tradition of knowledge, that doesn't mean there's an absence of ideology. And the the better we get at just because you can't eliminate semantic bias. So like language works because it biases you towards a particular way of seeing, and that's what communication is. You know, it's not about neutral language. It's impo- it's impossible. It's just about people just being empowered to. To yeah, see those things and, and know that. To look at a retreat website or an article and go, what the hell does this mean? Rather than feeling a need to kind of step up and absorb the jargon that's in it and feel as though it does mean something. I think particularly with retreat websites where a lot of the time the language is borrowed from scientific papers and they can say, well, we've got this all from scientific papers. But when it's been shorn of that context, it becomes something called plastic language. And so transcendence, that that means something. It's got a fixed meaning in scientific papers. But then when you've got a retreat website talking about transcendence, the meaning's totally up for grabs and subjective in a way that it wouldn't have been if it hadn't been pulled out of the context it was originally used in and it it does leave a lot of scope to go what does this mean which we really want to equip people to feel confident to do yes that's (laughs) that's that's the course that we're trying to amazing yeah bewilderment bewilderment is is the skeleton key to the bewilderment there it is well retreat operators if you need a ghostwriter who wants to break you out of calcified thought patterns in boring and pedantic language i guess you have a couple of worthy candidates right here so ross and rianne of semantrix thank you for joining me on the micropreneur podcast this is fun let's do another two-part episode sometime i really enjoyed this tit for tat thank you again have a lovely evening thank you so much yes and thank you so much for having us yeah and we loved having you yesterday as well this has been brilliant oh i can't remember if we said uh, semantrix.co.uk I can't remember if we said that. Say it again, semantrics.co.uk. Stop what you're doing right now and open that in another browser window, everyone. All right, have a great evening. Goodbye. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, micopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.